your news, your entertainment, your business. We're on a mission from God. This is The Rich Rothman Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, The Rich Rothman Show. Uh, this is Rich Rothman. It's about two minutes after the hour. Glad to have you here on 880 The Biz, uh, 24 hour business news, financial information right here for South Florida. And I'm uh, happy to be here today, along with Wanda in the studio. Glad to be here on such a beautiful day. It was just gorgeous today. Absolutely. I mean, nice little chill in the air. It was just clear sky. I mean, this is just magnificent weather. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Yeah, really like it. Anyway, uh, very exciting day today. Of course, it's uh, Elvis's uh, birthday today. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and he would have been what, about 80? 70. Nine, I think. Seventy-nine years of age. Somewhere, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, seventy-nine. Yeah, not eighty. Seventy-nine late years. Seventy-somewhere. Unbelievable. Well, anyway, he was born in uh, nineteen thirty-five. So, I'll kind of tell you where we're at with that. But uh, just a spectacular uh, uh, day for Elvis Presley. You know, born then and died in August sixteenth, nineteen seventy-seven, right at home at Memphis. A tremendous career. I mean, he's still the king, king of rock. I mean, tremendous. He, uh, sold more records. Let me a quick, quick. A uh, I don't know. I think Mariah Carey has his record beat. Do you think I've so? I've heard. Oh, I can't believe. That. I know. Me neither. But that's I can't what I believe heard. that. We'll have to go. Well, listen that. to this. He in 1954 he began his singing career with the legendary Sun Records. That's of course Sam Phillips, uh, the label that he had in Memphis. In late 55, his recording contract was sold to RCA, with whom he stayed, and he, I think he's still with them. By 1956, he was an international sensation. And uh, and everyone knows that he just set an entire an entire world on fire. He had uh, thirty three films that he was in, um, uh, record breaking performances all over, including of course Las Vegas and uh, in Honolulu, Hawaii. Mm, no, Did that was a, my I mean, that was his like that was the first satellite transmitted uh, show. Those are the first movies I remember seeing on TV. Really, was Elvis Presley? Yeah, I, every Sunday, my uncle and I would sit and watch Elvis Presley movies. I mean, thirty three films, and, and he was so young. Over one billion records sold, more than any other artist, according to what we re- looked up. Uh, his American sales earned him gold, platinum, and multi-platinum awards for 150 different albums and singles, far more than any other artist in the history of music. Uh, among his many awards and accolades are 14 Grammy Award nominations, three wins from the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. Anyway, look, you know Elvis Presley. I don't have to tell you all that. But the guy was just amazing, absolutely amazing. And his estate still makes millions upon millions of dollars a year. I know. And uh, selling all his goodies. He's got grandkids now. You know what I liked about him also, aside from his music, which was so cool, but uh, uh, the fact that he could have, if you wanted to, go into the armed services and get special treatment, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and be safe and sound and do yeah. all neat things and make life easy for himself. But he didn't do that. Yeah. He went in as a, just a guy. Well, you know? as much as Elvis could do. Well, yeah. But can you imagine serving and the guy sitting in the bunk next to you is Elvis Presley? Oh, that's just bloody unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, just a- amazing thing. So um, yeah, we, I'd like to gather up his... Uh his, those guys that served with him. That'd be a great little... That would be a fun... You know what? That'd be a great book, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or a little book HBO or, special? Yeah, an HBO special. An HBO like special. Because you're not going to keep reading it. Yeah, I want to see it. But that would be kind of... You know, Wanda, you would have reserved that title I, for you. I know. You know, the guys who serve... Serving with Elvis. Oh. Serving Elvis. No, so, serving no. with Elvis. Serving with Elvis. I Ser- don't know. We'll come up with that later. That, that is so cool. Anyway, on the show today, uh, at 5.15, we're going to have Neil Asbury, and we're going to be talking about... 
Uh, actually, where is the trade component for um, the uh, the bailout for the United States uh, that we're talking about? This uh, 1.2 trillion dollar uh, bailout that's coming down from Obama's uh, soon-to-be administration. And then uh, the second half of the show, uh, we're going to have Herbert London, um, America's Secular Challenge, the rise of a new national religion. He'll Dr. be here Herb. talking to us in New York. Dr. Herb? Dr. Herb is going to be here. He's going to tell us all about what's going on. So uh, hang in there. It's going to be kind of an interesting show, kind of exciting. Some international trade coming up. So stay right where you are, and we'll be right back. the ITC promotes Miami-Dade County as a global gateway by enhancing international relations, cultural understanding, and international trade. Every year, the ITC leads two business development missions to countries that have the potential to increase trade with our community through Miami International Airport or the Port of Miami. The ITC is the official county agency charged with the development of this trade and functions as an umbrella organization or clearinghouse for other trade development efforts within the county. Our vision is to promote and strengthen Miami-Dade County's excellent business climate, strong international financial services, and rich cultural diversity, making it the logical platform for trade America and the Caribbean. For more information about the J. Molina International Trade Consortium, go to MiamiDade.gov slash ITC or call us at 305-375-5808. It might be as simple as a water heater that bursts and floods your home. It could be as devastating as a fire that destroys your home. Either way, you need someone to represent you to make sure you get the maximum compensation from your insurance company. You need someone who knows how to prepare claims accurately. You need someone who can help you get a prompt and equitable settlement. You need East Coast Public Adjusters, one of the largest and most dependable firms in the insurance industry. East Coast Public Adjusters will be there for you every step of the way, from the initial evaluation and throughout the preparation of your claim. Sometimes people settle claims with their insurance company only to realize they're entitled to much more. East Coast Public Adjusters will help you reopen your claim and try to get you the money you need. If you've suffered damage to your home from flood, fire, lightning, wind or smoke damage, or even theft, you need East Coast Public Adjusters. Call East Coast Public Adjusters today. 305-441-0882. 305-441-0882. Or on the web at eastcoastadjusters.com. Should commodities be part of your investment portfolio in 2009? What might be the performance for commodities in 2009? Where are the energy prices going? Is the bearish trend coming to an end in the U.S. dollar? Should I own gold or silver? Will the cost of food go up or down? If these questions are important to your investment strategy, then you should be talking to MB Wealth, a full-service commodity brokerage to find out how MB Wealth is positioning its clients to take advantage of commodities over the next few months and quarters. Let MB Wealth help you at the retail level or advise you on a partial asset allocation with a commodity trading advisor with an established track record. In this volatile economy, it is more important than ever to have a diversified portfolio. Find out more on commodity investment specifics by calling MB Wealth at 954-929-9997 or log on to our website at www.mbwealth.com. 
While you're there, check out MB Wealth's weekly commodity commentary plus monthly research articles, tools that can help with your investment decisions. Call Matt Bradbart, President MB Wealth, at 954 929 9997 for all the details. MB Wealth, a full service commodity firm. Risk of loss in trading commodity futures and options can be substantial. All funds committed should be purely risk capital. Past performance is no guarantee of future trading results. Seaboard Marine is an ocean transportation company that provides direct regular service between the United States and the Caribbean Basin, Central and South America. Seaboard Marine's success in the region for nearly 25 years has enabled it to expand into new markets, now serving nearly 40 ports in over 20 countries. Seaboard Marine's facilities include a private terminal of nearly 70 acres at the Port of Miami. Seaboard Marine carries more cargo to and from the Port of Miami than any other carrier. Although this facility complies with and exceeds all governmental security mandates, it operates seven days a week, 365 days a year, a unique convenience for its customers. Seaboard Marine serves these routes from Miami, Bahamas, Grand Cayman, Colombia, Dominican Republic, Eastern Caribbean, Haiti, Jamaica, North Central America, South Central America, Venezuela, and the West Coast of South America, including Peru, Chile, Bolivia. Seaboard Marine, a trade leader in the Western Hemisphere. No one covers local, national, and world news like Rich Rothman. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL. Customer service is back in shipping. Your news. Your entertainment. Your business. The following program is intended for mature audiences. Alrighty then. This is the Rich Rothman Show. Caught in a trap, Elvis Presley. That was good. Suspicious Minds. Suspicious Minds. <laughs> is that what you call it? I knew that. Trap? Caught uh, in a trap. Well, he was you know, caught in a trap. Some people just have their own titles. That's he fine. was. <laughs> he was. No, that was. Um, I'm trying to think. Was that the one where he was like swinging his arm when he was in Las Vegas? And, and the big white suit. Yeah, yeah, the big white suit with yeah, the yeah, cape yeah. and everything. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. going like just that. Just starting to put some pounds on. Yeah, he got. Yeah, well, you know. The, he was enormously good looking when he was like yeah. he was like he had blue black hair mm. thick and yes I mean the girls just went phew, went nuts for this guy I think it was the hips the hips I think it was the gyrating all hips in the hips that gyrating hips anyway now that you're wondering who we are we're on the uh, Rich Rothman show welcome back it's about twelve minutes after the hour of five and we're talking about um, the uh, anniversary of uh, Elvis Presley his birthday today and when, uh, happy birthday Elvis. Um, and uh, welcome to 880 The Biz. We're happy to be here. Uh, until Neil gets on the phone, I have a couple of things of uh, news of the weird I thought I would point out to you that I'm sure you're going to be very interested in. And I don't quite understand some of it, so maybe you can help me. Our number is 866-954-4276. 866-954-4276. If you'd like to put yourself on the air and have a chat with us. Uh, this is the weird one. Wanda, listen to this. Uh, a panda. This is from Beijing, China. Maybe you, you'll see this on the news tonight. A panda in Beijing, China Zoo. Now, they have a great zoo in Beijing, by the way. Now, the panda bites the third tourist in two years at the Beijing, China Zoo. Now, Good you may say, panda. how can that happen? How can a panda bite somebody who comes to the zoo? And for that matter, how could he have done it three times? Well, this is what happened. So here's, here's the history. The, uh, the first time, the name of the uh, panda is Gugu. They always pick these kind of funky names for these Maybe animals. Maybe that's why he's biting. Gugu, Coco, Poco, mm, yeah. Papatiti. 
So uh, Gugu, a 240-pound, or for those who are British, 110-kilogram, hmm. panda mauled a man's legs and refused to let go. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> let go until the zookeepers pried his jaws open with tools. Um, <laughs> said a zoo spokeswoman named Gong. You know, what is that, another panda? I'm not sure. You know, all right, get the other panda in. Yep, get the panda to let the other panda go. Bring in Gong. Well, Gong evidently is the name of the person who works at the zoo. Anyway, let's keep that clear. She would not give her full name, as is common among Chinese officials. And um, <laughs> Gugu made first news in 2007 when he bit a drunken tourist who jumped into his pen and tried to hug him. <laughs> that's, that's terrific. That's just bloody terrific. A drunken tourist jumps into the bear's pen because he thinks it's like an animatronic. Oh, this panda is so sweet. Uh, the tourist retaliated. <laughs> this is, gets even better. The tourist retaliated by biting the panda back on his back. Do they have this on video? <laughs> I don't know. I think that, Surely I'm gonna, somebody I'm going to look for this on YouTube oh, yeah. we tonight. we got to find that. This is very funny. Okay, that's the first one in 2007. I don't blame the panda who's by the name. Let's keep it straight. The panda's name is Gugu. The person who took care of the panda who Gong. worked for the zoo is Gong. Gong. And the drunken tourist in 2007. Okay, in October... October of this year, Gugu, mm. not to be confused with Gong, mm -hmm. viciously bit a teenager who climbed into this exercise area out okay. of curiosity. I think we know why why Gugu's biting. Simply, I think this is terrific. You're in my turf. I think this is terrific. So in October, Gugu bites. All right. So a teenager jumps into his cage just for the heck of it. All right. The third time, teens. The third time is just today at the Beijing Zoo. The third time. All right, or the panda his bit down so hard on this person who jumped into the cage, and the reason this person jumped into the cage was to retrieve his son's toy. Now, I don't want to say hmm. anything, but these are really stupid people. Yeah. I mean, these are dumb people. But I think the best Well, ones you know, I think they just, I don't know, I, I think pandas are pretty big, aren't they? They're huge. Yes, yeah, okay. I mean, come on, they're it's huge. It's not a cuddly little, teddy bear. They're not. I mean, it's like, look at the polar bears. Oh, he's so sweet. He'll well, rip they you are apart. Cute. They are cute, but they'll rip you apart 14 different ways. Mm. Anyway, so that's the panda story. Brunch. <laughs> and the other quickie I just had to mention before we get Neil on. Neil, give me a minute. I just. Is that you may remember last week, this mm -hmm. is going back, in District of Columbia, Roy Pearson, a, a district of, well, he's not a judge anymore, they threw him out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Roy Pearson filed a petition with the District Court of Appeals requesting a case be heard that a local dry cleaner run, and I think it was either Korean or Vietnamese folks, uh, nice people. Uh, <laughs> he sued the dry cleaner for $54 million because they lost his pants for a while mm. and he sued them and he, he, he they had to defend themselves this is no joke they had to defend him anyway he, he bankrupt these people practically because uh, they had to get an attorney and they had to defend themselves finally um, uh, it was thrown out so this guy an ex-judge for uh, the District of uh, Columbia court, uh, court system is now appealing it to a nine-judge panel and, and Pearson claims the custom cleaners failed to live up to its promise of satisfaction guaranteed. Is that screwed up or is that screwed up? That's when law goes crazy.
Fifty-four million. They should do the thing, you know, the girls gone wild. They should do judges gone wild. This guy's a judge, and he's doing something as stupid as that. All right, now I got it out of my system with news of the absurd. I just had to get that out of my. I think the drunken tourist. I got to find that. Bit the panda back. That's terrific. Hi, Neil. Neil Asbury. How are you? Very, very good. You? I'm just. I just had. I just as I saw that piece this afternoon. I said, how could a panda bite a tourist? And how could he have done it three times? What is going on in Beijing? You've been to the Beijing Jew because you lived over there for a while. I'm sure. That's right. That's right. Well, did you know that a drunken tourist two years ago jumped into the cage because he just wanted to hug the panda because he thought it was a sweet animal? Hmm. I could see that. Have you ever seen goo? Goo. Goo 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 goo. Goo the, the, the Panda. Anyway, listen, Neil. Neil Asbury, uh, host of the Asbury Show um, every Thursday at 11 o'clock in the morning till 12 noon on uh, 880 The Biz. And I'm, and I'm honored to uh, co-host and be on the show with Neil. And Neil did a phenomenal job today with John Manzella out of New York uh, talking about trade infrastructure and, and why, you know, what's really missing in all these bailouts and what's missing in, in all this discussion uh, with the Democrats, with a proposal for tax cuts and stimulating the economy, is one word, isn't it? Trade. Neil? That's right. That's right. And um, it is trade that's missing. And, in fact, uh, I just uh, have here on my screen uh, uh, President-elect Obama just uh, had a big speech today and tried to talk a little bit about his plan and uh, this huge economic stimulus package, uh, which could cost up to a trillion dollars. Yep. Uh, you know, he's talking about uh, a broadband rollout, an internet-based small, smart energy grid, and computers for schools as part of the plan. Uh, nothing in this uh, speech today said anything about trade. Nothing about trade. Nothing about small businesses that uh, and access for those businesses in uh, overseas markets that would be historic if they did have access to these markets in the sort of economic uh, 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 activity that that would cause, that that would create up to $500 billion per year of of um, uh, American uh, 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 products being produced and exported uh, in addition to the trillion that we already uh, send overseas. Uh, but nothing of that here. Not even a mention, not even a whisper. Well, it's interesting and that, because... And this is fresh. I mean, this is as of, uh, you know, a couple of hours ago. I know that. And, and I have in front of me uh, some of the outtakes of some of the things he's talking about. For example, he... he and by the way, the Democrats are, are critical of this. There are a number of people. Uh, Senator Ken Conrad, Democrat of North Dakota, is saying, you know, uh, he's especially critical of the proposed $3,000 tax credit for companies that hire or retrain workers. And, and the reason he's saying that, he's, he's critical, is that if I'm a business person, says uh, Senator Ken Conrad, it's unlikely if you give me several thousand dollar credit that I'm going to hire people if I can't sell the products they're producing. Now, let's say that again. It's not like, it's unlikely if you give me a seven, several thousand dollar credit that I'm going to hire people if I can't sell the products they're producing. Now, that's a very telling statement, Neil, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it, as, as we said earlier today, uh, we were talking, uh, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, as well as his family. And uh, so what we're seeing here is you know, taking care of some symptoms of the disease, but not taking care of the disease. See, what we need is job creation. 
you know, what we need is job creation. Right. And, and trade is another word for job creation. I mean, we have to perhaps, you know, get rid of this free trade sort of uh, 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 nomenclature for, you know, for, for economic activity overseas and the sort of uh, the trade conditions we would like to see overseas for our exporters, because that has just got such a negative con- connotation these days. Uh, but n- nobody would ever uh, object to uh, job creation agreements. Uh, and that's exactly what these are. That's essentially what these are, is allowing American ingenuity to thrive, giving them the resources and standing shoulder to shoulder to ensure they have market access. And this whole economic crisis that we're going through right, right now will be a thing of the past. It will be something that navigated through in a in a in a in a, in, in a record time, sh- much shorter period than many people are projecting. I mean, I, I'm looking at this thing right now, and he's saying, "Well, you know, things are going to get worse before they get better, and this is going to be going through this year, and we think next year too is not going to be a good year." And you know, he's trying to control expectations. I mean, he's trying to say, you know, don't expect very much from me. So if I do anything, then you'll have to say that I was a success. You know, I know that. You know, as president of a public company before, you control expectations for the stockholders. You come back and you make a couple cents more a share, and everyone thinks you're a hero. Exactly. But this is this is something totally different right now. I mean, because this is perception, right? The problem right now is more perception than it is the reality. I mean, you go out on the streets, you go to the restaurants. I mean, there's you know the same amount of cars on the streets. I mean, uh, you still stand in line to get into restaurants. I mean, there's all sorts of activity. Economic activity happening all around us. This is a crisis of confidence, uh, but you know, and because of that lack of confidence, you know, people are you know going through layoffs, major layoffs, because people are just scared about what's to come. So, if we were to invest our money into our small businesses, which over the last decade have created more than 70% of all new jobs, and we did give them opportunities uh, in bigger markets to sell their products, which they're not allowed to sell to today, uh, it would be historic in the amount of economic activity that would flourish and the recalculation of our tax base in order to invest in all these great social programs that our politicians love to uh, pontificate about but absolutely have no clue how to deal with. Well, what's very interesting is that, you see, the things that they're talking about, for example, one tax provision that he uh, was discussing today was a $500 tax cut for most workers and 1000 for couples. It's about $140-$150 billion over two years. The individual tax cuts could be awarded through withholding less from paychecks, which means you're going you're gonna to take home anywhere from 10 to $20 more a week. Well, that's good if you want to get a, you know, a couple of burgers and fries. But that's not going to create jobs. But you have to have a job to have a tax break. Yeah, exactly. You have to have a job to have a tax break. You, you don't file a, a tax job. return. So why don't we create the why job? Yeah, why don't we just cut to the chase? That doesn't even buy a television. Well, that's exa- you know, you stole my line. That's exactly right. That's, if, if take $500, and you know, you can't even go out and buy a the Televisions aren't $500 anymore. They're, they start at like $600 and stuff. So the point is this. Here, here's the point. Why don't we try and do a stimulus package, or at least part of it, that, as we said this morning, doesn't cost anything? It just doesn't cost anything. Because well, what we want to do is get more clients 
for the companies that are looking, the, the SMEs, the small to mid-sized companies that hold and, and create more jobs than any other segment of the country, that has more entrepreneurism, that holds more patents, that really is the backbone of manufacturing in the United States, right? That's absolutely so right. So why don't we give them a break and say, Uncle Sam's going to help you get millions of more clients for your company. Now, wouldn't that turn someone's head in the, in the union and say, what? You mean that we can sell more cars someplace? Well, yeah, we could probably do that. Well, by opening up markets, by uh, funding the SBA program uh, more, by uh, lifting the very low ceiling on SBA uh, export financing, uh, by investing more money in the commercial services uh, in our embassies overseas and that staff that's out there, the commercial service staff that's out there helping small American uh, companies, small and medium-sized uh, enterprises, uh, helping to make first contact with distributors and, and foreign markets and so forth, which is very much proven. Uh, every dollar we've invested in the SBA uh, export finance program has resulted in four hundred million, four hundred dollars of ex, uh, of export activity. For every dollar, we got four hundred dollars. One to four hundred. And in the um, in in the case of the commercial service, for every dollar we've invested in export promotion, it's resulted in four hundred and twenty-five dollars of exports. So I mean, these are really proven. Um, and uh, as an American entrepreneur myself, as an SME owner myself. I mean, we are not asking for any freebies here. You know, all we're asking is, as you said, it doesn't cost anything. To have a give free us, trade agreement. Give us market access. Provide us export finance guarantees that we pay for. That we pay for, folks. That we pay for. That's right. And at, at market rates, at not subsidized rates, at fair rates, give us those export guarantees that... that Traditional commercial lenders do not finance export receivables. Have the SBA uh, have greater uh, capabilities in providing those sort of guarantees, and the American entrepreneur will put millions of our citizens to work. And then give them a tax break, because guess what? They're going to have a job, and will mean something. Give us Colombia, give us Panama, and give us South Korea, and we can actually create some jobs. People will get jobs out of that. People will get jobs out of that. And that's about $25 billion a year of uh, new business. So wouldn't that be great? Congress. Wouldn't that be neat if we can actually, let's think about this. Here's the true bailout. Let's create jobs by getting better products overseas into areas where we don't have to fight a tariff and a duty, that we can create and have t millions of more people buying our products and services, which then comes back here in terms of more money and more people working. And guess what? It doesn't cost the government hardly anything, does it? Um, it, it, it it's so obvious, Rich. It's so obvious. But yet, you know, all of these smart people and all these, you know, great brains that have come together to usher in this new administration, it is absolutely unbelievable if they have a war chest of a trillion dollars and they're thinking about how to spend it. Well, you know, that it, this it, has been totally overlooked. It's been totally overlooked. I'm looking at it right now. You know, unless, you know, he's holding the best part of this, you know, uh, out, and this is only a teaser, uh, you know, trade and the small and medium-sized business here in the United States, these legion of soldiers that would be around the world creating all sorts of opportunities for our workers here at home uh, have been totally left out.
totally left out. Free totally trade. Out. Free, Milton Friedman would like this. Free totally trade. Free trade. Out. Pass those free trade agreements. You know what I'm talking about? Create jobs. Job creation we don't have agreement. to bail. Listen, we're not going to buy it. What, what did Nancy Pelosi say? You're not going to dig your way out of this, drill your way out of this? Guess what? You're not going to buy your way out of this either. Neil, i got to go. We're running up against the wall. Be good. Thanks, Rich. Stay well. Take care of yourself. Ciao. All right. We're going to be right back in uh, the other side of the uh, on the uh, half hour. And we're going to have Dr. Herb London with us from the Hudson Institute. And we're going to continue this conversation in a slightly different vein. We'll be right back on Rich Roffin on the 880 The Biz. Stay right where you are. Second largest economic engine in our community, providing an annual economic base of over $16 billion and over 100,000 jobs. These are high paying in demand jobs, very much coveted by other cities and ports throughout the Americas. We're fortunate to have this business, and of that $16 billion, National trade and cargo at the port accounts for over $13 billion per year, a significant fact as well as a significant economic impact for all of us. The Port of Miami, working to enhance and contribute to the economic success of our country, further reinforcing Miami and South Florida as the gateway to the Americas. A new terminal that is larger than some mid-sized U.S. airport. The new Miami International Airport. A new 350-space ground-level short-term parking lot. The new Miami International Airport. The only U.S. airport with sleep pods. The new Miami International Airport. The international gateway to the American flights to South America than all U.S. airports combined. The new Miami International Airport. And coming soon... 61 new retail and food shops to add to your airport savoir-faire. Come experience the new Miami International Airport and watch us move towards the future. The new Miami International Airport. You know where I'm spending my next romantic evening out with my wife? At Biltmore Carl Gables Miami, a golf and spa resort. Maybe we'll start the evening with a five-star dinner at the newly opened Fontana Ristorante, enjoying their authentic Italian cuisine prepared by renowned chef Gaetano Accione. Or perhaps we'll dine at the acclaimed Palm d'Or restaurant. Zagat called Palm d'Or one of the best restaurants in the country. South Florida's best restaurants are at the Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami. On Thursday after dinner, we could really enjoy Biltmore Unplugged. Live jazz music poolside at the Cascade Bar and Grill. Fine food and live jazz is awaiting your next romantic evening at Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami, a golf and spa resort. Visit www.biltmorehotel.com for more information or call them at 1-800-747-1926 for reservations. The perfect night out is at Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami, a golf and spa resort. Do you own a business outsourcing your accounting? Then call the accounting and tax experts at TNJ Tax Service. For over 30 years, TNJ Tax Service has been preparing taxes for South Florida companies and individuals. As enrolled agents with the Internal Revenue Service, the pros at TNJ Tax Service can represent you or your company professionally to the IRS. Have challenges with your company's bookkeeping? Then call TNJ Tax Services. QuickBooks certified. TNJ Tax Services can provide training on QuickBooks for any small business. If you need monthly or quarterly bookkeeping services to handle all of your payroll and business needs, then you need to call TNJ and J Tax Service, located at Taft and Flamingo in the Pillbox Plaza. Call 954-432-1700. 954-432-1700. TNJ Tax Services. No one covers local, national, and world news like Rich Rothman. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL. Customer service is back in shipping. 
It's South Florida's newest and freshest talk show. And now for something completely different. The RichRothmanShow.com. This is The Rich Rothman Show. Okay, welcome back. 33 minutes after the hour on 880 The Biz. This is Rich Rothman along with Wanda in the booth. Glad to have you here today in this gorgeous, beautiful day. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, little catch there. Uh, on the phone right now, uh, I hope, I think it's out of New York City. Could be Washington. I don't, I'm not quite sure right now. Is uh, uh, Dr. Herb, uh, Herbert London. How are you, doctor? I'm doing well. Hope you're doing well. I'm in New York City today, but I hope that everything is going well for you in Florida. Well, it is. I mean, the, the weather down here, I mean, we've had probably the best weather in the last few weeks of any place in the country. It's just been gorgeous. Well, it's not so gorgeous in New York. It's pretty cold and pretty windy. <laughs> I, was, I was listening to Glenn Beck this morning. He said it was snowing for a while this morning. I guess you had some rough well, weather. Some, some flurries, but the, the winds are extraordinary uh, on the order of 40, 45 miles an hour. Really? Yeah. Well, you, but you know, New York can do that. New York is used to cold. I grew up in New York City, so I remember we were tough. In, uh, and you know what? And I did see snow going up, particularly about the Empire State Building. Glenn was talking about that this morning. Anyway, Dr. London, it's a great, it's just great to have you here on the show. Uh, Dr. London's the president of the Hudson Institute. It's a renowned think tank in Washington, D.C. He's a uh, professor emeritus and the former uh, John M. Olin professor of humanities at NYU in New York City, by the way. My sister got her master's degrees there. And he is responsible for creating the Gallatin. Did I say that right? Gallatin School, that's correct. Gallatin School of Individualized Study in 1972 and was its dean until 1992. You know, that's a great title from the 70s. I taught college in the 70s and down here at Nova University, and, and we had um, uh, two, two programs, the Institute for Retired Professionals and the Institute for Lifelong Awareness, and that I, they placed me on when I, when I was teaching college English there. So this is a great title for that. And, um, and the school was organized to promote the study of great books and classic texts. So we're, we're really glad to have you here. You have a new book out now, don't you? It's a new book called America's Secular Challenge, The Rise of a New National Religion. Can, uh, let me just, before we get to that, because I think it's going to lead right into that, uh, can you, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of these bailouts. I just, I'm just, uh, we were just having this conversation with Neil Asbury, who has a show down here uh, called The Ad Neil Asbury Show, talking about international trade. And we're talking about the Democrat and the Obama, the, the soon-to-be President Obama proposal. And he's talking about tax cuts, and he's talking about, you know, uh, giving people $500 back or $1,000 for a couple, and it's going to cost 140 to $150 And He's talking about, you know, giving a $3,000 tax credit for companies that hire, re retrain workers. And, of course, and, and a lot of people are in favor of it already. You know, Ken Conrad, Democrat from North Car uh, Dakota, is against it, and others are saying, well, that's not going to, that's not job creation. That's not well, job creation. Well, it's to get to Paul. I mean, someone has to pay for it. I mean, the obvious point that seems to be overlooked is who pays for this. And then when you look at the question of who is receiving the benefit, 44% of Americans do not pay taxes. They're going to receive a rebate. That's not a rebate. It's not a tax rebate. How could it be a tax rebate if they haven't paid taxes? So you're giving them a welfare payment. Let's call things what they are. So you're making a welfare payment to poor people in America. Now, that may be desirable, but since they, they operate at the lower propensity to consume, they're simply going to buy something with that money. They're going to buy something, and hopefully it adds to the general state of the economy. But it's a one-shot deal. If you get $500 and you spend $500, fine, it's over. And if you build a bridge because that's necessary to generate some, some sort of public works program, fine. But what do you do after the bridge is built? It seems to me that what you have to do is create an environment where not only jobs can be created, but where wealth can be created. And wealth is generally created because people can keep their income. 
So if you had tax cuts across the board, that would make a lot more sense than spending $750 billion on giving tax credits or tax rebates or welfare payments to poor people and simply saying, fine, we're going to build bridges and roads and highways and so on. Well, you know, the thing that intrigued us the most, and, and, and my background is pretty expensive, extensive in uh, international trade, is that the component for trade is totally missing in, in the Democrats' proposal uh, to try and uh, bail out, you know, the, the economy going forward. And I find that to be amazing because if we would move forward with trade, if we would move forward, for example, with free trade agreements, i.e. Colombia, uh, that's sitting somewhere in Congress right now for the last 700 days, would be uh, Colombia, uh, Panama, and South Korea. We create new markets for products that are desired overseas, giving millions of people the opportunity to buy our products at a, at a, fair, at a fair price. And that would at least stimulate the economy because we'd be sending more products overseas. So we'd be creating more products. At least it's creating product, creating jobs. And you know what? It doesn't cost anything. It well, costs. I think that it's a very sensible proposal. The problem, however, is you've got Democrats that are very much concerned mm-hmm. with the dislocation of jobs. And even though in the end NAFTA created more jobs than it ever, ever eliminated. Nobody wants to hear is- that. I don't want to hear that, no. especially if there's structural dislocation in areas of the country that are critical to the Democratic Party, like Ohio and Michigan, places that have suffered to, to some degree by the loss of, of uh, various, uh, various jobs. So I do think that what you have here is a political concern that trumps the economic concern. And that political concern stands in the way of the kind of free trade propositions that you support and I unquestionably support. So then that leads me to your uh, conversation about your new book, America's Secular Challenge, The Rise of a New National Religion. That's your book. That is the book, and that is the argument. The argument that I make in the book is that what we have seen is the confluence of a variety of different trends in the society. Multiculturalism, uh, atheism, uh, transnational progressivism, moral relativism, that have all had an effect on creating what I regard as a new faith, a faith in this kind of radical view of society. And it is having an effect on the way people think. The narcissism that we see in American life, the me-first attitude in American life, to some degree, is what we are now facing. The credit crisis that you've seen in America with the credit markets royal, to some degree, are really a cultural phenomenon, not merely an economic phenomenon, where people believe that you can live beyond your means. It didn't make any difference. So at some point we'll pay. Maybe inflation, inflationary dollars will take care of the problem. Well, you know, you know, of what this all means. Well, it became, but it became a government policy. I mean, it was endorsed by the government. Our own people did it to ourselves in a way. You know, going back to the '90s, where we came up with this idea of you know this great society program. We're going to have a great society, and everybody, this egalitarian country, everybody's entitled to a home. Everybody's entitled to a car. Everybody's entitled to a you know an LCD. Everybody should be, I guess, homogeneous in the sense that there are no differences. Everybody's entitled. Is that what well, you're saying? The, the entitlement psychology, which you make reference to, is absolutely a government-imposed idea, but it obviously reflects the will of the people. We live in the nanny state, where people want something for themselves. They're not willing to give anything back. They don't recognize duties and responsibilities. All they see are rights. And the new right is the entitlement to have all of the things that everyone in society obviously craves. And whether it is, as you quite rightly point out, a new car or a home... The Congress has said, very uh, going back to the, uh, the Community Reinvestment Act, that 70% of Americans have to be homeowners. They created that arbitrary level. And they did it in a manner that was so irresponsible, they simply said, fine, it doesn't make any difference. Don't put any money down. You don't have to. We've got these CRA funds, the, credit, the Community Reinvestment exactly. Act funds. We'll provide that money for you. So you earn $35,000, but you want a $300,000 home? No problem. Perfectly okay. No problem. We'll make it happen. 
And, of course, what we've seen is that this whole system has collapsed. And now the society and the economy is hurting as a consequence. I, I mean, one of the things that I find very upsetting is that the same people who are responsible for giving you this problem are now saying we're going to solve the problem with the same sort of uh, very loose credit arrangements. So the conditions that led to the problem are now also seen as the solution. Well, doesn't it? I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to move on to within the same overview topic. Let's talk about some of the bailout then, the concept of bailout and versus a free market economy. For example, we have you know the the most sexy one that came up recently is the three three automakers. They're in, the CEOs are in Washington. They're looking for a handout. We're looking at corporations, and I kind of put Ford in a slightly separate category for a moment, but at least GM and and Chrysler which I find to be confusing because I'm not quite sure Chrysler knows what they're doing, and I'm pretty sure that General Motors has gone down the wrong path because they seem to be building these large SUVs over and over and over again, with the exception, the, the couple of caveats, the Malibu, and, and of course they're putting all their money on the Volt, which God forbid they don't produce that car well. It's all over for So I'm, just, I'm curious to get some of your thoughts on, on these well, let bailouts. Me you, let me give you an impression. Hey, sure. Here you are, you take General Motors as a company. Every time it manufactures a car, it loses $1,700. Absolutely. Now, know in what that. sense is that a business? I mean, Toyota, with all of the difficulties that now Toyota is now facing as a result of the collapse in credit markets across the world, still generates $2,000 every time it sells an automobile. We lose $1,700. They gain $2,000. So the we obviously being General Motors. Right. Now, I, you know, it just seems to me that that's not a business model. So you've got to do something. Now, if you've been in this business for years, it's not as if this crisis has just emerged. There have been bailouts in the past, and there have been subsidies to the automobile companies. It happened with Chrysler going back to the uh, Lee Iacocca days, and it's happened before. And even in the Volt, the car that has been much discussed is this electric automobile, which, by the way, will never, ever be accepted by the American public. You go 40 miles, and then you've got to stop and plug your car in? doesn't make any sense to me. So I, you know, and, and that car is subsidized. It's a $40,000 automobile, and it is subsidized. GM says it's not going to make any money on the car. So in what sense is this a business model, and in what sense have the automobile companies addressed the real concerns that they've had over the last 10 or 20 years at the very least? And they haven't done so. So what makes you think they're going to do so in the future? The UAW says, fine, we'll make some concessions. Well, the concessions are de minimis. They refuse to make the concessions that are necessary. They've got to understand that if this, these companies are going to survive and jobs are going to survive, they're not going to survive with $75 an hour. Not, uh, that, that is not going to happen. So there has to be a realization on all parties that things are going to have to change fundamentally. Well, the, the, it's very interesting you said that. You're right. Things will have to change fundamentally. And I think what the unions have to recognize is something is not going to exist because it's always existed. It's changed. It's shifted. You know, the, the products that they were producing are anachronisms. They don't work the way they should work anymore. The whole market has shifted. They're not meeting the needs of the market, obviously, because their cars didn't sell. And what they're charging to produce a car just because they're a member of a union doesn't work anymore. As a matter of fact, they're shooting themselves in their own foot. Well, speaking metaphorically, let me put it to you this way. Suppose a group of horses that have been pulling plows and represent a very significant part of the farming industry unionize. All of the horses get together. Along comes a tractor and says, you know something? You guys aren't necessary. We've got a tractor. It's a much more efficient way for us to do farming than having horses pull plows. But the horses say, we're unionized, and I'm sorry, we're not interested in the tractors. Well, that scenario is a little like the scenario that we're now facing in the automobile industry. The unions are saying, we're not changing. We're, we're still pulling plows the way we used to, and we don't care about new methodologies. We're not interested in a more sensible economic program. 
We simply want to do things the way we did them in the past. But it doesn't make any sense. It stands in the way of progress. And these people never read Schumpeter, who talked about creative destruction. If you want to create, you very often have to destroy what existed in the past. And that is one of the elements, one of the axiomatic elements of, of, of economics. And it's often overlooked in the way people think about these problems. Well, that's exactly correct. I mean, it's very. Uh, this is God. You should have been on the show this morning. You would have enjoyed it. Uh, we, we're going to have to get you on Neil Asbury's show. But um, I want to go back to your book for a second because your book kind of goes into some of the conversations I'm I'm very interested in. Number one, um, one of your, your your chapters, compression at the mean, the American way, uh, where you're talking. We want both in terms of uh, inequality. We spread the wealth. We're hearing a lot of that right now. Yeah, it was the whole uh, mantra during the, uh, you know, change we can trust, we can believe in. We're going to spread the wealth. It, you know, Biden saying, you know, hey, do the right thing. Be a good American. Be a patriot. Give some of your money away. Does that work? Well, I mean, there are, there are two natural tensions that exist in American life and always have right from the outset. One is individual liberty, where we want to give people the opportunity to do things on their own and to recognize their own talents and their own aspirations. The second is equality equality before the law and all men are created equal says the declaration of independence well you can't have equality and individual liberty there are tension with one another if you say people are free to do what they want then obviously you're going to have a disparity in incomes you can't have egalitarianism and have individual liberty at the same time so that this tension exists we want to create an environment where there's some understanding about equality certainly equality before the law but there's not equality when it comes to the way in which we run the economy People can't all end up at the finish line at the same point, not if they have individual talents, not if they have individual abilities, and not if you have a free system. So we want to encourage that freedom. When Mr. Obama said, when he was running during the course of the campaign, that he challenged the Founding Fathers, he was very much in, in, uh, uh, concerned about the Founding Fathers because they didn't understand or recognize the importance of income disparity. But what they did understand was the importance of liberty. That was the overarching concern because they were very much opposed to tyrannies. And if you have individual liberty, then you have to recognize the fact that individual liberty is going to stand in stark contrast to this idea of egalitarianism. Well, that, that is so correct. Now, look at the educational system. Now, you've been involved in the educational system because you taught. You taught at very high levels. And, and I remember, now I'm a product of the 50s. I grew up, I was born in 47. So I went to college in, in 64 through 72. And, and I remember when I was much younger, we, we had tracking. In other words, in New York City, we had, you know, 6'1", 6'2", 6'3", 6'3". If you were in 6'1", 2", 3", 4", you scored fairly, wound up skipping eighth grade. And, and you, were, you were tutored dramatically to move along as quickly as you can because it was recognized that you had the ability to learn, hold on to the information, and assimilate and, move, and, and learn even more. Now, there are a lot of students that wound up in 6, 8, 6, 9, 6, 10. Remember, baby booners, we had like 13, 13 different classes for 6th grade, 7th grade, ninth grade. But a lot of those other students couldn't function at the same level that we functioned at in 6, 1, 6, 2, 6, 3. But, and that was fine, because they were taught at their level so they could achieve. But it seems that over the last 20 years, we've moved away from that concept, and everybody should be the same. Everybody should have the same education. Everybody should have the same opportunity. Everybody should have the same car. Everybody should have the same home. Everybody should have the same ability to spread the wealth, so to speak, amongst themselves. I don't think that works. In fact, well, I find the, that disincentivizes somebody. Well, excuse me for interrupting. I was going to say, this is the egalitarian madness. What you have is you no longer recognize excellence. 
what you do is if a school is doing poorly, you put money into that school. If a school is doing well, you ignore it. So what you have is the bottom comes up slightly, the top comes down dramatically, and you get a compression at the mean. And so what you have, what you end up with, is a kind of mediocrity. American education is nothing more than a kind of mediocre standard. That's what we have come to. And you're quite right in asserting that not only do people learn differently, but that there are obviously different levels of attainment that are possible. But we refuse to recognize that. We refuse to recognize what is fundamental in our own society and our own nature. And that, I think, is a very real problem. So you've seen the dumbing down of America. If you ask kids, you know, who are the, uh, the, who's the winner of American Idol, they can tell you. But if you ask them to describe the tripartite form of government, they don't know a thing about it. Now, this is quite remarkable, that we live in a society where a democracy demands that people be somewhat educated, and yet people do not have the foggiest understanding of their own government or how, how the system operates. And this is one of the reasons why I think that the dumbing down of America led to a lot of youthful enthusiasts in the last campaign. But if you asked anyone, why did you support Obama? I mean, tell me of a piece of legislation that he supported. Why do you believe that Obama would be the right president? Tell me about the, the legislative and policy positions that are taken by this new president. I don't think any one of those people, young people who supported him, can tell you. Well, what was interesting, I listened to a... Um a uh, forum that was at George Washington University about two days ago, and they were talking about uh, basically what you're saying right now, uh, the, dumbing of Amer- the dumbing down of America. And one of the reasons they gave for that was quite interesting, was ironically the computer. Because the compu- one of the aspects of the computer and one of the, the, the unique qualities of the computer generation is social networking on the computer. And it would appear that this current generation is acculturating on the same level. In other words, peer acculturation from one of their peers to another one of their peers to another one of their peers. This is how they're assimilating information. Whereas in our generation, we're pretty close in our generation, we got that from the older generation. We got that from our parents. We got that from our teachers. We got that from our rabbis, our priests, our ministers who gave us this concept concept of ethics, gave us a concept of, of knowledge, gave us a concept of more social mores. And, but, but, and, and what they're postulating at George Washington was that has been ripped apart, and social networking is very catalytic to that. Well, you also see this in the, in the classroom itself, where the, uh, the professor was once the sage on the stage, and then after a while became the guide on the side. But now he's the peer in the rear. He sits in the back of the room and like he's one of the students. They're all the same. You know, they ask people, what is your opinion? As if all opinions are equally valid. And so you get the exchange of ignorant opinion in most classrooms. I mean, I remember a course that was given in the university called Critical Thinking, where they asked the question, what would you do if you ran out of fossil fuels? Well, if you never studied the laws of supply and demand and you knew nothing about the conservation of energy because you hadn't taken a physics course, how are you supposed to answer questions of that kind? So what you would get is stupid responses, which are all entertained by the instructor. Well, we're going to send a rocket to, uh, to Mars and maybe we can get energy from Mars. Oh, really? We're going to get fossil fuels from Mars. So that's something you ever think about the expense or the logistics <laughs> in attempting to do that. And so this is the kind of idiocy that is now promoted in American universities. And we call this education. I remember Thorsten Devlin once used the expression trained in capacity. Well, this is what you have, trained in, trained in competence. Uh, they're terrific. I, I'm, I'm really glad I met you. I've got to get back to you. Listen, we only have a few minutes left. I want to go to another segment of your book. And um, uh, the book is America's Secular Challenge by Encounter Books. 
um, runaway inflation. We have let's let's take a minute and a half and talk about. I am I am very concerned because I think the gerbils and the printing plants are knocking out a lot of money right now. And for some day reason, I think I'm going to look like the Weimar Republic in the 20s. Well, you may you may be putting the money in the using it as kindling in your fireplace because what is going to happen? I mean, this is just over the horizon. I can see this happening. We're throwing all of this money into the economy. We've got unfunded liabilities with Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare that are on the order of four times GDP. So how are you going to deal with this problem? You're going to monetize the debt. This is precisely what socialist governments do, and this is what you're going to find in the United States. I don't know when it will happen, but I'm sure it will happen. And that one is obviously a hidden tax because people's assets are going to disappear. The, the, the capacity to buy things is obviously going to be reduced when you're in an inflationary cycle. So, you know, pretty soon, and they're talking pretty soon, there's going to be a heavy price to pay in about two to three years from now. Are, are we concerned about runaway inflation, as you well, describe it in your book? Where, since we're in a deflationary cycle, the government, they, the government acts like interventionists. We've got a deflationary cycle. Let's do everything we can to provide a stimulus. They're not thinking ahead. They think of their firefighters. So they're, let's put out the fire. And they're going to worry about what happens next week. You may put out the fire, and you've created flooding in the local community. But this is precisely what we are now facing. We're facing a situation where the United States is going to be in an enormous inflationary uh, impetus. It's not going to be controllable, in my judgment, in large part because you've got the baby boomers that are retiring. They're going to look for their Social Security payments. You've got the Medicare expenses that are going to increase dramatically, in large part because of baby boomers again. And you've got all of this money that has been pushed into the economy as a result of government efforts in the stimulus package that Mr. Obama is going to promote. What is the outcome of this? There's only one way to handle it, and that is to monetize the debt. Scary thought, huh? Very scary thought. Very scary I mean, thought. The founding fathers, by the way, did not talk about fiat currency. They thought that was one of the great evils, one of the great poisons in every society is fiat currency that is not backed by some species. When Nixon decided he's going to, and Roosevelt and Nixon decided they were going to go away from the gold standard, it had a profound effect on the way in which the world economy exists. And I think that what we need is another Bretton Woods discussion of what kind of species can go behind the currency, because all we have right now are the words in God we trust. And I trust in my God, but at the same time, I'd like to know that there's something behind that currency that I'm presently using to make trades. Great statement. Listen, I want to get you back on the show because we're, we're out of time. I want to thank you for being. Listen, this is uh, Dr. Herbert London. He's the president of the, uh, the Hudson Institute. He's professor emeritus at NYU. Uh, he has a book out, America's Secular Challenge. How can they get a hold of you, Dr. London? Uh, you can reach me at uh, herbhudson.org or Hudson Institute or hudson.org, any of the above. Okay, I want to thank you. We must get you back on the show. Thank you. All the best. Thank Bye-bye. you for being with us. Take care. Happy New Year. All right, I want to thank Good Conversation. He's good. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I want to take a course from this guy. He'll, 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 he doesn't get have you. any opinions. He'll get... <laughs> He's good. You, you're good. Okay. You're good. I All liked right. him. I want to we get him back. Go. Anyway, thanks for being with us today on the uh, Rich Rothman Show. We're going to come back tomorrow. See you then. Bye-bye. We'll be back tomorrow for more of the good. I look forward to a great future for America. A future in which our country will match its military strength with our moral restraint. The bad. Its wealth with our wisdom. The business. Power with our purpose. I look forward to an America which will not be afraid of grace, which commands respect throughout the world, not only for its strength, but for its civilization as well. 
And I look forward to a world which will be safe, not only for democracy and diversity, but also for personal distinction. TheRichRothmanShow.com This is The Rich Rothman Show.